some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird pick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back. That's when I saw it. I saw one. It's actually attacked two railroad workers, uh, killed livestock. You know, just a lot of weird stuff that was going on. Monster Extras, this is your host, Gunnar Monson. Along with me, as always, is my good friend, Shane Hardcore Corson. Mr. Corson, how are you today? Fantastic. Loving life for a second there. glad to be here. Glad to be here on Monster X Radio. I thought for a second you were taking a nap. Oh, no, I don't nap. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> so, with us today is uh, Mr. Scott Harriet. Did I say that, say that right, Scott? You did. I think you're one of okay. four who have actually said it correctly. <laughs> All right. And uh, Scott is a, a uh, documentary filmmaker, a Bigfoot enthusiast, and a comedian. So uh, this should be an interesting show. Um, I didn't know, Scott, what order to put those in, so... Uh, I don't know if you're a big fan. Oh, and, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I actually, well, you know, I actually don't do stand up anymore. I, I stopped doing that in like uh, 1947. And, oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I did that for 12 years and then uh, stopped right around 98. Got a, I had a TV gig for a few years, and uh, uh, but I still attempt, albeit weekly to uh, make people laugh at times. So uh, I guess technically one could characterize me as a comedian. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Thanks thank very much. Well, um, but we, ex- we do expect you, the bar is high for, for um, comedy today. So um, we appreciate that you <laughs> dig deep and pull something out of your, your uh, I, yeah, uh, routine. Boy, your routine. Right. Your routine. So, Scott, tell tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and we know now that that, uh, you are no longer a stand-up comic. Yes. Uh, I'm in a wheelchair. That's why I primarily uh, know 
Um, I, uh, as far as like Bigfoot stuff, I mean, I think myself, like uh, a lot of people who, uh, <clears throat> around my age, I'm in my mid fifties, um, you know, they, they somehow got exposed to, uh, you know, one of John Green's books early on. And in my case, my dad had actually bought, uh, not, uh, not the, the, the famous big one, the Sasquatch Apes Among Us, but one of his earlier ones, I think it's called the year of the Sasquatch. And he had, uh, he was a, a former pilot, and he was up in the Northwest, saw this somewhere, bought it for me, and I just loved that book, man. I thought it was really cool, and I liked the way Green wrote. It kind of had this uh, objectivity about it and this non-sensationalized um, um, vibe to it, and I just thought he made a pretty good case that there could uh, very well be something uh, uh, to it. And then, uh, of course, like uh, a lot of people my age as well, uh, Patterson film was interesting to me. Though now, <clears throat> I, uh, as you guys may or may not know, I, I, I lean fairly but not super heavily toward uh, thinking it actually is a fake. Um, but, um, but I will completely accept, uh, or, I, or rather I completely accept the possibility that in fact could be a, a Bigfoot. Because if it is a suit, it is a really good suit. It's just that the circumstances surrounding the shooting of that film, I mean, it's like more uh, red flags than a, uh, than a Chinese parade. So uh, in a nutshell, that's why I'm uh, skeptical of it. Um, so, yeah, I made a couple films. I made a, I made a purely comedic one uh, in 95 called Journey Towards Squatchdom. Uh, when I was doing stand-up, which is, by the way, the worst job to have if you're serious about Bigfoot. Um, and, um, the, what inspired that because, because I was serious and still am serious about the, uh, about the possibility of these things existing, I would meet and hear about these people who, you know, I've had 18 sightings. He threw rocks at me and then he impregnated my wife with alien spawn. You know, it's like those guys who give the field such a black eye. I think to a lot of people in the general public. So I kind of did a little mockumentary thing about that. And then I made another one in 2002 called Squatching, which was kind of half serious, um, half comedic, and dealt somewhat with this thing that happened to me in uh, 1992 near the mouth of the Klamath River that to this day I still think in all strong probability uh, involved not one but uh, two of these creatures. So... uh, it's still a fascinating topic to me. Um, yes, I still, I'm, I'm about 99.9% convinced that in fact they do exist. Uh, I just leave a, a modicum of doubt uh, because I uh, hopefully respect the scientific method enough that short of a body or uh, part of a body or confirmed DNA of some unknown primate that um, they may not exist. But I, I think, as I said, I think they probably do. But I was well, rambling, Scott, wasn't it, man? I just been ramped. Jesus. No, I, I yeah, bored no, myself I, most of the time. They have some Ritalin, I think, is is helpful for that. But uh, um, I was I was telling Shane we need to screen our guests better. But uh, the uh, <laughs> but, but seriously, Scott. Um, yeah. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about your personal in- encounter. In, uh, yeah, what were you yeah, doing? Yeah. What were you doing down there? Yeah, what? Why yeah. was I there? Well, you know, here's the thing about that story, and I will do my best to condense it, but it 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 
I've, the average running time of the story takes like 15 to 20 minutes, but I'll try to, nut, you know. Ramble. If, if, we got time. Cu- it, yeah, ramble. Okay. Away. Well, people okay. really it, listen to Monster X to listen to the guests, not to really listen to us. Although that was a quite good jab you had at me there. That was good. I enjoyed that. Yeah. I guffawed mightily. Um, <laughs> okay, so 92, and right around 92, the early 90s, obviously, um, is right about the time that call blasting, kind of those who were into Bigfoot around there kind of came, uh, that idea started getting passed around about, you know, getting stadium type speaker, some kind of big speaker, and then blasting out a uh, uh, mountain gorilla or orangutan or purported Sasquatch screens to see if anything, you know, responds to it or comes and investigates. So mm-hmm. I actually, this is like September of 92, and I called the little, the little information booth there in Willow Creek, and I asked, the, I didn't tell her why I was asking about this, but I asked her initially if there were any horse or mule packers in the area, because what I was thinking, it'd be great, you know, to pick like some ridge line up there, have some guy take a bunch, me and a bunch of equipment, maybe a, a friend and a, and a shotgun probably, and uh, get dumped off for a couple of weeks and do some call blasting experiments. So she said, uh, no, I don't, uh, I don't know of any uh, horse packers, mule packers. Uh, and then I broached the topic of Bigfoot. I said, so what, I mean, I'm just curious, what do you think about Bigfoot? And she said she lives, had lived there her whole life. She was skeptical of it, but there's a lot of people she she knew who had stories that she wouldn't consider crazy or overly imaginative, right? And then she said, it was very interesting. She goes, and it's a little strange you're asking me this. And I said, why is that strange? And she said, because I don't get a lot of Bigfoot questions, right? You know, uh, the reason it's strange is because a guy just called here yesterday, completely bent out of shape, very emotional, saying that his son and his son's friend in a small town called Requa near the mouth of the Klamath had that day come running back uh, uh, from looking for snakes, 12-year-old and 8-year-old, white as ghosts, saying they had seen this approximately 6-foot-tall, heavily muscled, uh, ape-like creature staring at them about 100 feet away on on the embankment, or up on the embankment. They were down in the dry creek bed, and they looked over and saw this thing beigeous, light-colored, kind of whitish uh, color they both described. So I said, that's pretty cool. And I asked her if it was okay if she had the guy's number and it, would, if it was cool if I'd call him. She said, yeah, I called him. And after talking to Daryl, Daryl Owen is his name, for about a half hour, what I was convinced of at the very least was that these kids had seen something big and alive that they couldn't explain given known uh, parameters, Right. But it sounded pretty good to me. Like, I think this, it smelled like it was a legit encounter. So I had, like, being that I was doing stand-up at the time, again, the worst profession you can have if you're in a big foot. Um, I had about four days off. I was in L.A. at the time. I picked a buddy of mine up. I wanted to go up and interview these kids as quickly as possible. So we both got up there. It was like a 700-mile drive. And so we were able to interview them within 48 hours of when they said this occurred. And we interviewed them separately. Uh, No contradictions in the stories, both very believable. Uh, My buddy, Dan, who I took with me, who was kind of a kind of not super interested in Bigfoot kind of agnostic, but he felt that, um, that the kids seemed legit. And I thought so too. 
So we went to where they said they thought it was standing. There was an interesting indentation in some ferns, but, you know, when you're looking for imprints, you really, you know, need mud or sand to see. And you're looking, uh, what I would hope an investigator would be looking for is like real specific uh, toe delineation. And he couldn't tell that. So, but again, the veracity of their stories and the fact that we talked to them separately and they, there were no contradictions and it pretty much, you know, they matched pretty closely. It further enhanced my belief that I, I think they probably had a legit sighting. So it's like, now what do we do? So um, as it turns out, I was going to be coming back up to that area. Three weeks later, I had some gigs in um, Washington, Idaho, uh, Oregon region. So I kept in contact with the father and we decided to uh, a plan of action would be that where this happened, where the kids said they saw it was at the base of a very steeply sloped, densely vegetated row of hills that bracketed one side of this valley that these, these homes were in. And if you look up at the, the, the ridge lines, you can see an old logging road. So we figured what if we, when I come back up, why don't we go up? I and mean, it's a nasty hill, man. I mean, dense, thistle, very steep. But since we both telling us the truth, maybe there was some footprint evidence up on this uh, old logging road. So in the meantime, Daryl finds out that this property, he goes back and investigates a little bit in the hill, finds some intermittent barbed wire along the base of it. Therefore, it was or still is private property. He hadn't lived in the area very long, and he asked around and found out this older couple owned the property. So we decided, let's go talk to these folks and uh, just tell them straight up what the kids told us and get permission that they let us go up into this property up on these steep hills. And so we go and we are talking to the lady. The husband was gone, perhaps returning a gorilla costume. I'm not sure. But anyway, no, that's a little humor there. Anyway, and um, the lady, we, we told her the story and she looked at us super calm and said, yeah, we know they're there like super calm. And it was like, first you had this layer of credibility with the kid's story. Both were believable. Then this lady so calmly saying, yeah, we know they're there. Uh, I then remember asking her if she had had an encounter or her husband said, no, we lived here 35 years, but we have two friends. I forgot if they're either Yurok or Hoopa Native Americans who would, and again, if I remember correctly, they, that they both had uh, road sightings. At night, at one, one or, you know, a different one uh, crossing the road. So um, they were totally cool, said, you're welcome to go up the hill anytime. Just, you know, obviously we, we prefer you don't bring firearms. We're not trying to kill one. We're just interested in this, and you can go anytime you want. So the next day, and I don't recall telling her that we were going the next day. The reason I point that out is because, you know, when what happened happened, you want to consider all possibilities, right, whether somebody could have possibly hoaxed you or not. So um, the next day we start up this hill, and as I mentioned before, super gnarly, super thistly, super steep, uh, but cool. You know, I mean, like really kind of awesome, very jungly, a lot of ferns, pulling yourself up the hill with, you know, all the ferns and whatnot. And uh, our beacon, as it were, as it was or as it were or whatever, there's a huge Douglas fir on this, uh, on this hill. I mean, it's easily over 100 feet tall and you can see it through the under understory of all the brush so if you got lost in all this thick vegetation we could always kind of find that thing because it's probably like it seemed like five feet wide that the tree so 
uh, an hour and a half zigzagging back and forth on this hill. It's too steep over on the left. We go over to the right, it's too dense. I mean, like machete, you know, uh, worthy vegetation. So we get to the tree. And at this point, when we get to the tree, the hill flattens out quite a bit. Compared, I would say it was like on average about 35 degrees going up. And then you get to the tree, past the tree, roughly 10 to 15 degree slant. We get about, I believe it was about 60 feet past that. And now this, this whole, another big bank of rhododendron thick shit in front of us. Now what do we do? Well, we just got to, if we, we know if we keep going straight, we're going to reach this road eventually, this old dirt road. So we just start to go into that, and I noticed about 40 feet directly in front of us in all this greenery was this darkness that was low down, low to the ground, and part of which you could tell was some shadowing caused by a tree that had fallen probably years before, a pretty big tree. So it caught your eye, this darkness. And um, so I'm looking at it, and pretty quickly I realized that there's two pretty big brown eyes looking out of this darkness at me, what appears to be two brown eyes. That was, you know, pretty much confirmed about 30 seconds later when they slowly started swaying back and forth. At first I thought, well, this could be some weird reflection, but then uh, a slow back and forth, maybe, you know, no more than an inch, inch and a half back and forth swaying. There's clearly some type of animal there. Well, and again, it's, it's, you know, obviously we have Bigfoot on the brain because of the kids report at the base of this hill a few weeks earlier. But because it was relatively low, it wasn't like, you know, you're not on high squatch alert. Uh, but, you know, what made it interesting, it clearly was not acting like a bear. Bears don't stare you out. I mean, the, the thing this thing was doing was similar to what almost like an owl would look at you, but it was clearly not an owl. It was too big. The face Though we couldn't see it, the eyes were just simply too big. So for 10 minutes, I videotaped this. And we're making chimpy noises and trying to get some kind of reaction out of it. And it's just very quiet, never takes its eyes off us. And we're not really freaked out. Um, and so after 10 minutes, it's like, well, what are we going to do? Well, since we didn't feel any, you know, didn't feel apprehensive about the situation, even though we didn't have any you know, pepper spray or gun or anything. We thought, what the hell? Why don't we just move toward this thing? So, again, it's imagine, if you will, like fairly thick vegetation in front of you, and we're seeing this darkness through kind of like an open avenue in the vegetation. So we take like one or two steps toward this thing, and God is my witness, the eyes of this thing, whatever it was, starting in the center and then opening like, like the eyes were dilating, which I think happened because I later then researched that mammals, when they get scared, their eyes dilate. So the defense mechanism lets more light in. You can see more clearly, supposedly. Well, imagine you're looking at two brown eyes, right, 40 feet away, shadowed forest, and then imagine you take two steps. Then imagine that the whole time you weren't, you weren't aware of it, but there was like a lit, two lit cigars in, behind each of those eyes, and then somebody takes a slow drag on them. As you, you know, so this red friggin' glow happened twice within about uh, 10 seconds. And then thankfully didn't make that noise. 
that's like and then closed down and then again and believe me it stopped us i mean it was creepy it was like you know christopher lee in a 1950s hammer film dracula film it was that freaking creepy now at that point the plausibility slash probability that this was one of these things increased quite a bit for me because as you guys i'm sure are well aware in the literature and the stories, Native Americans, people who claim to have seen these things up close, you, you will get more than a few times people reporting this bizarre red eye glow. Mm-hmm. And it truly appeared um, bioluminescent. It really didn't look like a refraction, you know, like you see a deer at night. And first of all, it was 2.30 in the afternoon. It's filtered sunlight coming down through the canopy of the forest on this hill. And I mean, it could, I'm not saying it is bioluminescent or was bioluminescent, but it looked that way. So what do we do now? Well, we sure as shit, we're not going to keep walking toward it because, you know, what does that mean? Is it scared? Is it going to charge? Is it the spawn of Satan? Who, you know, what the hell? So I thought maybe a good plan of action would be since we were like right next to each other, Daryl, when I was videotaping the eyes there for 10 minutes, uh, Daryl was right behind me. And so we, decided why don't we I'll go to the right and Daryl you go left it will clearly see us separate and maybe instinctually whatever it is we'll think we're trying to surround it and then it'll get up and it'll move and we can see more fully what it is well and again another little note here what was maddening about this experience was that you see the eyes clearly, and then you'd see little bits of light reflecting off what would be the face, but it was back. It was shadowed. It was right behind that shadow line, right? And another reason I didn't think it was a bear, but besides its behavior, was that a snout, something protruding, I think, would have been out in the sunlight. This thing pretty clearly had a flat face. So we get down, I, or either I go down to the right. I get about 15 feet away from Daryl. Daryl would later tell me that what he tried to do was to go left but the vegetation was very thick to his left. So he turned back. Imagine him turning right back toward the area where the eyes were. And as he turned to the right, he said peripherally in his vision, he saw a human-like shape in the same general area doing a sidestep. Like imagine crouching over and then taking like about a three-foot sidestep, but trying to be very stealthy about it. And so – all of a sudden, what, what I remember experiencing, and I'm 15 feet away, all of a sudden I hear Daryl go, okay. I look back, and he's got the video camera. We each had a video camera. I had a high 8 And Daryl, believe it or not, again, this is 1992, had an actual VHS camera where the VHS tape goes in the side, one of those behemoths, right? And I look back 15 feet, and he's, now he's videotaping upwards. I mean, the whole time I had been videotaping the eyes down, now he's videotaping, like, up. Roughly, he's roughly six feet tall. But, again, looking up a slope of about 10 to 15 degrees, he's, and he's pointing, and he's clearly shaken up. I mean, his voice is like an octave higher. He's trying to hold it together. Uh, you can actually hear my, my voice on the original tape going, yeah, take it easy, take it easy. And he's using his finger, and he's pointing – I'm trying to remember at the time what I thought, but I don't. But on the video, if you see the video, you can see this big white thing. It's his finger, and he's trying to point what he's seeing in the viewfinder, or what he thinks he's seeing anyway. So he tapes for about 30 seconds, and um, he's making all kinds of uh, 
Uh, but I can't see what he's seeing because that vegetation up there was so thick. You move about three feet, you can't see. I'm sure you guys have been in shit like that where it's yeah. so thick, you move a few feet, right, you can't see. So I'm 15 feet away. But I can see Daryl because there's this little, little opening that I went down. Um, so I kind of am creeping back toward Daryl. I'm getting a little closer. He tapes for about 30 seconds. And then video camera just goes limp in his hand. He turns to me. Now, now he's like crying. His, his, his eyes are uh, full of tears, and he's whispering to me. He's like, you know, again, I can't remember verbatim what he said, but it's basically, it's like, what, 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 what? And, he goes, and just, I have seriously in my adult life never been in the presence of someone who was that friggin' scared. I know, you know, you guys have heard these inca- stories of encounters where there's something charged in the area, you know, like, like you know, some people have speculated on infrasound or whatever the hell that is, or just, just the fact that you're pretty convinced what you're close to here is something that some people think is a myth and it's big. And so, I mean, I, it was like fear was pouring out of him and I, I had to be like the adult. I got, I got to calm him down because I, I was starting to lose it. People have asked me, oh, why didn't you just walk right in where, you know, just charge in there and look? I go, well, that's easy to say, <laughs> say man, when you weren't there and you didn't have any pepper spray or any, any weapon and you're way the hell up this hill that took you an hour and a half to get up. Um, so, you know, discretion being the better part of valor, assuming he got something on videotape, I figured, let, let, let's get out of here, man, because I, I don't remember if he, how clear he was in describing how close it was or all that. He was just really frightened. So we start down the hill. We would stop, listen. Nothing was coming after us. Was, there was no smell or anything. And then we, besides my shorts, and we get down to the back to the house, which from the base of the hill is only about a quarter mile away. You cross back over this dry creek bed, and then you go down a, like a half a block, and Daryl's house was there. And so I want to see this videotape and he puts it in. And as I remember, he plays it once and there's a lot of vegetation, right? As I mentioned, while we were on that, a lot of foreground background, some's in focus, some's out of focus. And I remember being close to the TV and expecting just to see something blatantly there that he was reacting to. But the first time he looked at it, I go, what's he talking about? What the, you know, maybe, maybe he just freaked out. We were seeing these eyes. We definitely saw some animal's eyes glow red. But now maybe he, now the fear maybe kicked in and now he thought he saw something. You know, I, that ran through my head as well. So I'm like, I don't see it, dude. And, and so, and he's like, he's kind of pointing to it. And then, it, then we rewind it, freeze frame it. And then I remember stepping back from the TV. You know, the time when you, you try to get too close to something and you lose it because you're too, you're, you're so anxious to see it. Well, I step, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 feet back from the TV. And I'll never forget looking at that image and going, oh, my God. And I just looked away from the TV. And I remember telling myself internally, be objective, be objective. Don't roar shark this. You're into Bigfoot. Consider all other known uh, explanations for this. So I look back and approximately 30 feet, I'm guessing in front of Daryl's uh, lens on the camera, uh, sticking out of the side of this uh, rhododendron bush at about, you know, four to five feet is this huge Schwarzenegrian mountain gorillian looking upper arm. I mean, total muscle definition, bulging deltoid like a, a mountain gorilla has, 
a bicep, tricep, and you see a space next to the arm like would be an armpit, and then what would be the beginning of a torso, but then it's covered because that's where the bush is. And it's the same color that the kids had reported three weeks earlier, that being a beigeish, light-colored uh, color. So I'm looking at this. And it's also, if it is in fact an arm, if it's an arm, it's bent. In other words, the forearm is hidden behind the, the brush. And so it's not a friggin' tree. Trees don't hover, as far as I know. I've never had anybody who's looked at this videotape say, offered another explanation what it, what it is. I mean, it, it's pretty clear. If you clear your mind, you go, look, doesn't that look like a big muscly arm? It looks like a big friggin' muscly arm. So how do you test that theory? How do you test that it's a big muscle arm? Well, it would stand to reason that if it's a big humanoid type arm, if you go from the tip of that purported shoulder on that upper arm, go at about 45 degrees up to the left, there should be something, even if it's obscured, that looks like a head. And lo and behold, when you look up on the tape at about six feet, you know, six feet off the ground, behind a couple of thin branches, you see this kind of chrome domey. Uh, same color as the arm, by the way. You can't see where it's connected, though, because of the bush. You see the head and the arm, but where it connects, it's not because it's obscured by part of the bush there. But where the brow ridge is and then a general facial um, outline, it's black. So you've got this whitest head, what looks like a protruding brow ridge, and then black. Okay, so I'm like, okay, there, there's your possible head. It's consistent with that thing. Now what do we do to test this theory? Well, now we're going to watch it again, and I'm looking for movement. We were very fortunate that day. There was no wind on the hill. If you see the video, it's all um, – uh, none of the vegetation is moving. It's like a still yeah. life. So I reasoned that if that alleged head moves, it's got to be animate. It's got to be alive. So play the tape again, and twice within that 29 seconds, you see this head do like – Oh, I forgot how long in maybe 10 seconds in it tilts out just slightly. And now I understand these little grunts that Daryl was making because it looks out once and Daryl, ah, okay, excuse me if I'm crying at this moment, but it's right here. Finger comes in, he's pointing. It then really quickly kind of ninja-like head goes back behind the bush or behind those strands, holds for about another eight, nine seconds, and then tilts out just a little bit farther and that's where Daryl begins to lose it. That's where you see the camera go down. And um, so the next day we go back. Uh, we had two other people with us, still no gun or, or um, pepper spray. We, you know, I'm pretty sure these things are largely docile. Not that if they exist that they haven't probably killed somebody. I don't think the odds would be pretty good they have if they, you know, they were hungry or whatever or defending their young, but didn't really feel super threatened. When we went back up the next day, the where the you know the eyes were obviously that creature was gone and uh, where the shoulder head thing was was also gone. Um, but thirty feet approximately behind where the shoulder head thing was, in extremely thick vegetation. I mean, at times crawling on your hands and knees. We're we're, we're going through this stuff. A lot of deadfall, and all of a sudden we part this vegetation, and there is this about 25 foot long, 15 foot wide nest, clearly some type of animal. This is not a wind pattern. This is matted down thick vegetation. We climb into it. 
uh, very reminiscent of you know, National Geographic specials on mountain gorillas. It's the top of the hill wow. that's where they build wow. it. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And uh, which, and as I sat there, and as you look directly down the hill, like if you're looking due, you'd be looking north, there's that tree right there. And it's why I kind of came up with this hypothesis after this happened that if somebody, whoever's listening out there, if you ever want to you know, go searching, uh, maybe a thing to do would be if you have a vast array of hills in what you would consider a squatchy area, maybe pick the hill that has a big prominent thing, like a big tree or a huge rock, because it would seem to make sense, something like a Sasquatch's uh, consciousness, you know, like a primitive man, that might be a, a thing that they use as a, as a, as a marker, as a, well, you know, if I'm looking for a mate, well, they're probably up there because that's what stands out amongst all the other hills. Um, the day we went up, the first day we went up, uh, Daryl and I found a couple hares in that area. They were given to a guy named Sterling Bunell, who was a, uh, who was a primatologist. I, I, I know he's a primatologist because I looked it up on the Internet, so therefore it must be true. Uh, whether or not he's a quack or not, I don't know. I have no reason to believe he's a quack, but when Daryl and I got interviewed on uh, Ancient Mysteries about this back in 94, Bu- Bu- uh, Sterling Bunell's opinion about these hairs was basically this. He compared them under a microscope. This is pre-DNA and you know, hair anyway, even if it was DNA, it would have been difficult to get anyway. But so he did a morphological analysis, I guess, under a high-powered microscope. And he said he felt the internal structures of these hairs that we gave him were very similar to, to the mountain gorilla and chimpanzee samples he had. But in his opinion, they were distinguishable. I think that's the term he used, similar yet distinguishable. So he basically was saying he thought they were primate hairs. So when you take the totality of everything that happened, the hair analysis, finding the nest, the red eye glow, the kid story at the base of the hill, the imagery of the shoulder and the head, the history, pretty strong history of sightings in that area via the Urox and the Hoopas and other people. That's why I say I think in all strong probability I was within, you know, 35, 40 feet of two of these things that day. Can I say absolutely sure? No. But when I've contemplated other scenarios, hoaxing or another type of animal, it just doesn't add up. Like, could, you know, could Daryl have hoaxed you? Well, if he hoaxed me, he has Sean Penn caliber acting skills, crying on command. He rigged up some kind of thing where glowing red eyes would appear. You know, it, it starts really stretching the limits of uh, your imagination. And then another suggestion has been, well, what if there was a guy there in a suit and that first thing you saw was another type of animal. And, and I go, well, that doesn't make sense either because if there's a guy waiting up there in the suit, and this would have to be within about 20 feet of each other because um, there's no animal that would have fit under that thing, uh, which I think, by the way, was a younger one because when we went and looked closely at the tree the next day when it was gone, there was no way, in my and Daryl's opinion, that something that the thing he got on with the shoulder and the head could fit there. It was simply too big. So I think a small one was in there. We happened to catch a glimpse of it. Mom or dad or big brother is back in the super thick stuff. And then as soon as we made that potentially threatening move of separation, like any good mammalian uh, parent or sibling, it, it moved to get in between us and the little one. So 
that's it. That's wow. <laughs> wow, Scott. You know, I watched your film and uh it was it's it's fantastic. Uh it's you know, it's got its funny points, it's got its interesting points, but I didn't know half of what you just said right now. I was not aware. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, because it takes a lot in squatching. Um, it, it's a broader outline of what happened. I don't go into the detail because, again, half the film is comedic. And uh, although in, in the new film I'm working on, I probably will go into a little more detail like I did just now. Uh, the plan is to go back up the hill for this film. Where, uh, myself and uh, a friend or two are planning to go up at the same time of year um, in mid-September. That's when the kids had the first sighting. Mm-hmm. working on the possible hypothesis when we're thinking, why would they have been there? Um, we found out later that it was right around the time that the, um, the salmon run was going on in the Klamath river. So as the, oh. as the crow, as the crow flies, it was about, it's about a mile from where this happened as the crow flies, it's a mile from the mouth. So, um, although the salmon now are, you know, more and more diminished going up the Klamath uh, for various reasons, but, um, and you know it's a crapshoot. Obviously, I think. I mean, I think what happened was, it was. I was just very fortunate. I was, uh, and it also I think goes to show anybody listening, never be afraid to ask a question about anything, because if I had never asked that lady what she thought about Bigfoot when I was on the phone initially, what subsequently happened never would have happened. You know, oh, I asked her about Bigfoot. Yeah, it's weird you asked that. A guy just called here yesterday. Said his son and his son saw that. Got the number. Blah blah blah. And then, um. Yeah. So, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, um, Scott, I, you, you got my, you, you tickled my fancy here because you just, you just, and Gunner's probably knows exactly. It's the first time I've heard that from a male. I just wanted you to say that. Well, you tickled my fancy here because. Well, that's two of us that you tickled our fancies. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, making yeah, me question time. my heterosexuality right now. <laughs> well, so, yeah. I am happily married, but you still tickle me. Okay, yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the thing, yeah, the thing is, you just mentioned some stuff here um, that is very, very fascinating to me. Uh, that I'm, I'm only heard uh, from a few people and in uh, certain books. And yeah. the reason it tickles my fancy is because uh, I, uh, Gunnar and I work with a group. Uh, we're a part of a group called the Olympic Project who have come across um, some nests, some bedding areas mm. in the Pacific Northwest. And you described – you mentioned a few key things there that just yeah. blew my mind right now. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of floored right now. I, I don't even know what to say. But uh, i got to ask you, this area, yeah. beside the salmon run, uh, can you describe yeah. exactly the, the, the area you were in? And uh, You mentioned rhododendron. Any other um, – what was the plant life like? Was was this yeah. creature, or this thing, um, at a vantage point on a hill? I mean, can you just describe the yeah. area in general? Sure. Um, it was a, where the nest was in the general area where we saw the eyes and the and the you know the muscled figure. Uh, you can't you can't see out from it. I mean, it's so the the, the secondary vegetation is so high. In other words, it's not like you can open a bush and then you're looking down on something. But you know what you can do, and I thought this was really fascinating too, is that as we were climbing this hill, I remember thinking this, that you can hear everything going on down in this little valley, little, little, like kids, because it's basically quiet up there, right? It's, 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 it's rural. And so I could understand something <laughs> like 
you know, something like a mountain gorilla type consciousness because it feels safe because it's such a, you know, and this is the thing I harp on with people about these, these animals and this, and this, and this region, the Pacific North generally is that the amount of steeply sloped, densely vegetated hillsides, there are just thousands of those types of things. And because of our relative puniness, physicality wise, Sure, we can build an atomic bomb, but compared to so many animals in the forest, including, I think, Sasquatches, which by all accounts are incredibly strong, that's nothing to them. So they could be 10 miles away as well, you know, as well as a quarter mile away because you're up a damn steep. Nobody wants to go up. There's no trails. It's thistle ridden. Nailed it, yeah. And you know what? So they know that they're kind of safe. Coupled also with this is, is theory some have had, and I, I – completely think it's a valid theory is uh, that these things would be smart enough to know uh, private property. I mean, they don't know the concept of private property, but they know like fencing that this, that other beings like us would be less likely to go in there because of this, this barrier that's been put up. And so they probably feel um, safer in it. Yeah. Not from a legal, legal standpoint. <laughs> Yeah, they're not going. You're not going to go up there, and he's going to have reading glasses on, reading some kind of right. Miranda decision or something. All right. But, right. Uh, <laughs> just from a guttural, simple. I mean, we always love to in, underestimate animals' intelligence. You know, I think to make ourselves feel superior. You know, and we always then we learn. You know, oh, orangutans spear fish. Okay, well, so much for they. Uh, you know, every every month it seems like some new thing to show that just talking about primates now, obviously that they're a lot smarter than we assumed before. So imagine something even closer to our brain size, few in number in these areas with these steeply sloped, densely vegetated hills. It's not all that surprising that they have remained um, undetected to this point. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you're fine. Uh, you're just you're okay. just blowing my mind right now, just because of uh, some of the things that have come to surpass and things we've been led to in the last uh, year or so. It's actually uh, the similarities are, and I've never heard you speak about this before, but the similarities Ooh. are strike. I mean, just striking. I mean, just crazy striking. Uh, yeah, you kind of leave me speechless on a ways because I'm just I'm I'm just listening to every word you say right now, and I'm just kind of floored. Uh, but well. I think it's a good, yeah, I, I mean, I think if someone's interested in this, it, it, it's, you know, again, which hill do you pick? And, and again, it's this, it, let's say if you had a valley that you, and, and you become aware it had a history of sightings, right? And there was something recent that went on, and, and you know it was in this valley region. I mean, my first thing I would tell somebody is like, well, of all, let's say there's 22 hills, and two of those hills near the tops, there's some kind of distinctive marker, like a big tree or a big rock. I would say go look there. Because how else would these things, if they travel for mating purposes or just, you know, or just basic nomadicism, um, how would they know? Why would they pick one hill over another? And there was, this is, and on this particular hill, there happened to be this over 100 foot tall big ass tree so i mean it may it may be just a coincidence could mm-hmm. be but i think it's something if um 
if somebody's interested in it, to uh, to go up and give it a shot and look to see if there's any history of nesting up there. Because it, it will remain. In fact, the last time, so that was 24 years ago when it happened. The last time I was up there was 14 years ago. And there was still evidence of that. No new nesting. That's what I'm like when I go back this time in September. Yeah. Um, to see if there's been any other vegetation growing. Last time I went, actually, there was evidence of some vegetation coming up through the old dead vegetation that had been matted down. So if in that 14 years, it's, if it's regrown, what I'm curious to see is if it's been rematted down. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm, I, 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 I think the odds are low, but it'll be kind of nice, uh, going back up there to see how the, you know, how the hill has changed and, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool, man. It's fun. Yeah, it's very cool. We're we're uh, in this area. You know, you talk about rhododendron, right? But uh, is this in, in yeah. the salmon? But as far as a food source, were there any um, berries or any natural, uh, you know, resources? No. You know, no. No, and the one thing was a little odd. But again, <laughs> assuming these animals exist, and we don't mm-hmm. know obviously a lot about them, there there was that dry creek bed below. So the nearest water source was probably the Klamath. But again, this might, and that was about a mile away. So, but again, we might be, or what I'm doing right there is maybe extrapolating, well, God, if I a human, I'd want water, but you know, I'm a human. These things, right. for them to go a mile in this stuff, could probably do it, I'm guessing, maybe 10 times quicker than we could. Just right. through their, their agility, their strength, the fact that they've evolved, to live in that type of environment, it's no big deal. And maybe they don't, you know, they go down and three in the morning or whatever and um, get all they need. In fact, that would be something interesting to study about mountain gorillas to see mm-hmm. what their water intake is. Because again, knowing that they tend to stay near the tops of hills, do they get enough water via vegetation gnawing on that? Or uh, you yeah. figure they would need a lot, but maybe they've evolved where they don't need to drink as much as, as we might think. So. Well, true, true on both points. Uh, they don't need a whole lot of water, but they do tend to um, nest. Uh, you know, they nest uh, one time in a nest. You know, they build an overnight nest, but they do tend to yeah. be near water source. That is true. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and again, yeah. A, a top of the hill scenario. Again, it's a, and it's the prime defensive position because if you hear something coming up, they're coming up, which means it's hard for this relatively hard for this creature, whatever's coming up that they might feel as a threat. And it gives whatever creature would be up there plenty of time to go out the back door as it were. And to pick, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. uh, to pick in, in what, in about a hundred degree, 180 degree span, several avenues of exit. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and by the way, o- over the next few years, I returned to that hill probably five or six times. D- didn't find anything. Um, of interest, uh, you know, in indicating reuse or any other hair samples. I did put some cam trackers up there and uh, no imagery, you know, we got up to that road finally. By the way, we, when we finally got to that road, it was hard as a rock. It was hilarious. It was like you could actually see some, I mean, it was old um, uh, tractor, not tractor, but like, you know, earth mover, maybe when they actually built the road, I think it was a, of a clay compound that it just hardened. So there was, there was nothing that was going to be leaving a footprint up there anyway, but um, we got something better on the way anyway. So, Yeah. You know, 
what what this this uh, possible nest or bedding area? What was it made out of? And uh, was it constructed? Was it made out of some of the local? I mean, something near you know, uh, no. rhododendron or? Yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was rhododendron. Um, mm-hmm. I know there was rhododendron in front. I remember looking at the imagery and showing this to people. So that's rhododendron. I'm pretty sure it was the same uh, for the bedding. And no, there was no evidence of like. Uh, construction, just matting down. In other words, uh-huh. going into it and just pressing everything down, sitting in it, and it, again, nothing it would make sense. Nothing really snapped, just bent. And uh, I mean, probably some of them have been snapped because of that, but I think uh, that's actually interesting contemplation. I mean, if in fact it's these types of animals doing that, what, what do they do? They just find a zone in that near the top, and then they start looking down in it, sort of breaking or, or bending it over, and so that it really provides a little fortress there, you know, like a little, like a, like a, like a fort, you know, like right. almost imagine like, you know, a kid who's building a fort in his, in his, uh, in his home. You, 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 it, it felt, you felt kind of safe in there because anything coming up couldn't see you. Right. Um, there was, by the way, at the bottom of it, you know, again, roughly 25 feet wide and about 15 feet, no, 25 feet wide, uh, 15 feet high, as it were, you know, going up slope. Um, and at the base, there did seem to be an area that was kind of circular, like something or things had been crawling through, because you kind of had the wall of vegetation, and then over <laughs> to the right was this area that looked like something. And if you went directly through that, you were basically heading right to the area where uh, the eyes are seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, my approximation of where the shoulder head thing was, was about uh, 20, 20 to 30 feet to the left of that. And, mm-hmm. and again, really thick stuff. Yeah. So, you, you know, yeah. Scott, you, what you described to me is exactly um, – in a lot of ways, uh, there are some differences, but I, I, that doesn't does not shock me or surprise me whatsoever. But what you described to me is exactly the scenario of the the nests or bedding areas that were discovered up here, or actually discovered in Washington. Uh, I mean, to mm. a t, I mean, to a t, it's it's uh, uncanny. Um, mm. uh, with with the vantage point, with the thickness of the terrain, with the um, this this crawling area. Uh, you, yeah. So so many points here are. It's it's uh, really cool, man. It's really cool because uh, it's exciting to hear uh, something similar in another yeah. area, in the Klamath area. I mean, we're talking Washington, and you're talking yeah. you know Northern California, you know Oregon border. Yeah. Yeah. Some really good uh, thick. Again, I, I got it's like a mantra of mine, but again, tons of steep slopes, tons of uh, densely vegetated. Um, uh, slopes as well, and uh, which again leads me. I mean, I always actually do bits talk about this in my act, but it, it's which ma- it makes it seem to me, you know, where who else would be using that area would be obviously pot growers. So right. I would bet you, I mean, that there have been, in fact, if you remember in Squatching, there was a, it was a secondhand story, but the yeah. guy who told the story. I, I think it was pretty clear he believed the guy telling him, and that that was that he said he knew a guy who was a paid sitter in a pot grove. Right. It was up in Northern California, and that uh, he one day heard something around the side, and he went over and he said there was this ape thing chewing on the buds, and mm-hmm. he just looked at that and he left. He literally left everything and quit. I mean, just left. 
and was gone and said, that's it. I'm not working here anymore. You know? So, um, yeah, I mean, um, it's, uh, I mean, and and again, in connection with this for, for any, uh, skeptical, uh, or scoptical listeners, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important to remember that in the history of higher primate discovery, specifically orangutans and mountain gorillas, there was this long period of anecdotal evidence before an actual uh, body was brought forth. And I think it's basically for two reasons. We're talking about something whose intelligence is quite a bit more than other animals. Like, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, and a bear, bear, what, how big is their brain? Like a big walnut or whatever, you know? And this is something that would be, you know, a lot closer to our size of a brain. And then plus, because of their size, there would be fewer of them. There's a certain scientific principle. I remember the first time I read about it was in Krantz's book. Uh, but there's that principle, the bigger an animal is in an ecosystem, the less there are of them. That's why there are billions of ants and millions of squirrels and thousands of bears. The bigger an animal is, the less there are of them. Because they need more area to have their little um, you know, ecological niche out there. So, um yeah, they're there, man. They're totally yeah. there. I, I think so as well. Actually, I know so. I've had a sighting, but that's that's oh, a wow. different show. Cool. Yeah, but yeah, you know, you you Scott and your buddy uh, Daryl uh, did something <clears throat> quite extraordinary, and, and um, pardon me, different than what I've heard out there. You know, I mean, of course, you, you did have Bigfoot on the brain a little bit and whatnot, but <clears throat> you guys, yeah. when you had this, this sighting of whatever was behind the bush and whatnot you guys didn't just like pack up and leave right away you kind of came up with a little bit of a strategy and actually approached uh which is almost unheard of nowadays because most people when they're filming they film something from a distance and then the film cuts out and you're like uh why didn't you walk towards it well you guys kind of did well kind of i mean i think we were fortunate because we noticed the eyes and you know if anything we only initially moved a little bit to get in position i mean we saw it and started videotaping from that point. But then, but, 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 but to be clear, there was definitely fear felt because yeah. it was after the 10 minutes of just viewing this swaying brown eyed thing there that again, was not acting like a bear, but the head seemed pretty big. And uh, based on the fact that the kids were put it right at the base of this hill, this is where they had had the sighting a few weeks earlier. And then we decided to move toward it. And then when that happened, when we like one or two steps and then this red eye glow shit happened, that, that was creepy, dude. I mean, it was yeah. really creepy. And, um, you know, we know that in the animal kingdom that mesmerization is used. That's what tigers use it on animals. They, they mesmerize them. They lock eyes with them. So who's to say, and again, this isn't even, this isn't like supernatural stuff. It's just. Right. It's just a, a thing that could be in what some people have reported happening. And again, perhaps an infrasound type of thing as some type of um, stunning. Um, I mean, we, we even witness this with other humans. You know, you, you have the, we've all had a, an encounter. You go someplace into a social setting and there's somebody eyeballing you. And that, that's yeah. just a disconcerting thing. It's like, boy, can, so imagine if an animal used that and it's friggin' big. And it's just, mm-hmm. and first of all, and it's weird because it, it, supposedly this doesn't exist. So you can see where that would really kind of freeze people. Like, holy God, what? Absolutely. You know, and all, yeah, and just knowing, and again, 
being sans weaponry, knowing that if it wanted to, it would, it would, it could kill you. I mean, there's just no doubt it could kill you. Yeah. So well, with, um, with Daryl, yeah. you know, he, he, yeah. he, he, he did, he got, he, he cried, he got emotional. Uh, I'm yep. really curious, uh, you know, with, with whether, you know, whether this was infrasound or just a, a really harrowing experience, which was probably definitely yeah. harrowing and kind of scary. Did he have any, um, uh, after effects, you know, people that get, uh, yeah. or proclaim that they've been hit with infrasound have, um, uh, effects days later. Did, what was Daryl's experience days later or even weeks later? Well, there was nothing I remember Daryl telling me physically, but he actually, I mean, psychologically, he went through the ringer because here was a guy who, they remember, they had just moved there a few months ago. And he was, as he told me, he said, I was kind of skeptical about Bigfoot stuff, you know, but then when my son came back, and I love the way he had put this and the first time I talked to him, and he's like, look, I know when my son is lying. He was not he's white as a ghost and he's not lying. And this other kid, the neighbor, identical story said he saw it. So, um, Daryl got obsessed like a lot of us do with this, but he got really, he got obsessed to the point that he told me anyway, his wife left him. Um, Daryl, I think also bought in a bit to, the Hoopa narrative, or at least part of the Hoopas have this view that it's not a good thing to see these things, that it has a negative connotation afterwards, like a curse, so to speak. A, 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 and I, I mean, personally, I don't believe that. But again, if, it's, if, the, if, if the person believes it, then that can lead yeah. to a lot of stuff, a lot of bad things happening. But apparently uh, Daryl's brother, I think within six months, even like within three or four months, ended up inadvertently killing their mother in a fight. Wow. And I remember him bringing that up. Dude, this stuff's happened. Look, my brother killed my mom and his brother went to jail for that. Um, and then Daryl got out of it and he just kind of left it behind. Uh, he, he's not active in any way. I mean, he's older now. He's a little younger than I am, I think. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm planning to interview him uh, 24 years later. Uh, for this film about it and how it still, if that all resonates, I think it does. We've, we've, uh, I haven't talked on the phone, but we've, uh, we've uh, Facebook messaged and um, yeah, it's still pretty clear. It was a pretty powerful thing that happened to him. Uh, yeah, personally, I would call it. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's easily for me, one of the strangest things that's ever, if not the strangest thing that's ever happened, um, to me, um, I mean, concerning mysterious things and what exactly went down that day. Uh, I mean, I feel, I feel very grateful actually, um, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I was into this, but, and again, anybody listening, don't ever be afraid to ask a question because if I hadn't, uh, whatever happened did not, it would not have happened if I hadn't. Right. Right. Did that make any sense? Something like that. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 cool. And um uh yeah, speaking of grateful, I mean very you know, like John Green just passed away what a few weeks ago and I mean the amount of uh, enjoyment I've gotten out of this phenomena you know, started with him. With yeah. his books. And even though we actually had some you know, disagreements down the line, we had we had a pretty intense uh online debate in oh four about 'cause I actually I and I still have come to the conclusion that actually when he came down to Northern California, uh, I think John got duped 
by um, some folks. Not fully. What I'm saying is that I do believe there are Sasquatch in that area, but uh, Ray Wallace and those guys, I think, and uh-huh. some of those prints that Green's looking at in those books of his, I mean, to me, are just like obvious fakes. They're just fake. They're too flat. They're too perfect. And uh, I don't know what exactly psychologically was going on with John, but but I, I, I think he just kind of bought into stuff a little too easily. Um, anyway, I'm rambling again. Sorry. Yeah, no, rambling Riddlin, is fine. Riddlin, Gunner. Gunner, <laughs> do you have the Riddlin yet? Is, still, is he still conscious? I put, it, I, I put it in the mail to you, but it, it, it won't be there for like, <laughs> a few days. So. <laughs> okay. Well, it'll, it'll be good to have for the next interview, if any, I do. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, you, I mean, you've got some, you're working on a project right now. You do um, documentaries. And uh, mm. one of your your, your uh, current project, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Sure. Um, well, as I mentioned before, I had made those two Bigfoot-related films, Journey Towards Squatchdom, which was the completely comedically oriented, and then Squatching, which is half serious, half comedic. And then after that, I got into uh, long-distance hiking, uh, uh, specifically the, the subculture of those who do long hikes like the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail. And I really love that. That's just been awesome. Made so many great friends. And so in the last few years, this gentleman named Michael Kaufman, who is a, um, who is a botanist who lives up near Eureka, um, came up with this route. He wanted to highlight the biodiversity of that northwest corner of California, the Klamath Mountains, essentially, uh, which I do believe, and it's part of basically where this thing happened to me, um, it's such an amazing area. It's just very chock full of mystery and um, and solitude and um, isolatedness. So he came up with this route to really highlight all the different um, – different trees and the different flora and the different fauna you can see. It's 360 miles, and he named it the Bigfoot Trail. Great, great name. Though he himself is only at about 5%. He only gives it 5% probability. I said, dude, if I can get you to by the end of this project, I'll be happy. So he's a pretty <laughs> hardcore science guy. Um, so I thought, what a great way to combine two interests I've had in, in one film, that is long-distance hiking and Sasquatch. So the way I look at it, I've hiked about 38% of it right now. It's really hard. It's just it's an ass kicker, but it's really beautiful areas and really remote. Um, and uh, so it's basically me hiking with a bunch of different friends in six basic se- sections. So we talk about Bigfoot. Um, we talk about the history of the trail. I want to get into like how trails are. Uh, this is the first trail that I've uh, doing a film about that's really in its infancy and how does how does that go how does one go about um, designating it or getting some kind of official designation because Mike has kind of done it on his own so I think they're kind of looking for some kind of um, uh, I don't know if it's grant money per se or something where there would be protection in those areas um, so so far so good you know I've shot about 11 hours of footage um, and uh, like I said I got about a little less than two thirds of it left to do. Getting ready to go into the Trinity Alps wilderness, which is uh, a great area. Uh, 
the bits I have seen of it, but yeah, this this uh, trail, this route goes right through it. So uh, got to do that uh, starting oh about uh, about two two and a half weeks. So that's it. It's basically it's just and plus there's a gentleman. I want to give this guy props because he wrote a really good book about this region, and it involves. Uh, the mythology, and by mythology, he doesn't mean falsehood. He just means the story aspect of Bigfoot uh, in it. And it's called, the book is called The Klamath Knot, like K-N-O-T, like, like tying a knot. Because what, what makes this area really unique is that it's a collision point of various uh, tectonic plates. If you look at a, like a hardcore geological map, you'll see, you know, it's like all this crumbling and, and, and uh, bashing together, you know, obviously done over millions of years of this area, which is, which has led it to be a very biodiverse place. Cause you got all these different soil types and different microclimates and whatnot uh, due to the uh, irregular uh, features of the topography. So um, yeah. And I'm, I'm hopeful that I can inspire people to either hike it or um, at least to heighten their appreciation of conserving such areas. Um, but we'll, we'll see how well I do. I, I hope to have it out by uh, January sometime. And Scott, do you, uh, are you having some kind of fundraising campaign for this still or raising money for yeah. your project? Hey, can you, you guys hold on ahead. for like two minutes? Shh. Just, I, sure. I am uh, I, like I mentioned. I'm in my mid fifties, and nature is really calling. So okay, uh, yeah. hold on one. We'll second. just talk. On, we'll just talk yeah. amongst ourselves. Okay, I'll be right back. Or I could pee okay. right here into a cup. No, I won't. I'll be right back. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is awesome. So that's, so that's pretty interesting. I'll tell you what. I'm floored. I'm floored right now, and I can't wait to. Uh, talk to some fellow Olympic Project members because um, Scott and I, you know, we never discussed this before. You know, I, I reached out to Scott to join us on the show based on his encounter and uh, and, and some of the stuff he's doing, his new project, his Kickstarter. Um, right. And uh, so I, I learned a lot tonight from Scott, but it collaborates with a lot of the stuff the Olympic Project's doing, a lot of the stuff that I've read. Um, in well, I know that you... Yeah, yeah. The whole nesting thing in in that the OP is researching right now, and I know that you've seen the nest, and and it, I, I I knew that would get you as soon as he was like, you know, he's talking about they look like gorilla, you know, gorilla nests. Um, yeah, but, yeah. And we've been we've been talking about that because that uh, the idea of being that those things when they make them they don't deconstruct them. So if you can find an area that has they that kind of topography, wow. You know, so, were, yeah, uh, just go ahead. We're we're still talking, so just. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Good, because I'm still pissing. No, I uh, know. But, it, but no, the, the whole nesting thing is pretty pretty fascinating because. Uh, yeah. It, it gives you something. Yeah, it gives you something to go. What what like you said, Scott, is the, these nests um, don't just go away. So here's here's yeah. something that a bigfoot researcher yeah. can go into an area and and look for and find evidence if you know where to look. And that's with right. what has happened with the, the nesting um, site that uh, the OP is looking into. Um, cool. Having 
corroboration of that in another area is fascinating. That's you know, you know, it would be interesting uh, yeah. to find out, and I'm, perhaps you guys have already uh, done some research in this area, but it would be great to find out, like, uh, to, to look at photos, talk to some wildlife biologists, uh, or yeah, yeah. Just, just Google it, and you might get some info about, like, for example, what exactly do elk nests look like? Because you know elk will make nests too, right? They're yes. big animals. Right, right, um, right. So is there a certain pattern? So it's like if you, you, if you got to know that and then you find the nest and uh, also get to know what an elk hair looks like. So you can like, if you go in there and there's a bunch of elk hair, then it's probably an elk nest type of thing. Right. So, right. Right. So there would have to be some kind of, I would think some difference between the basic structure, uh, like how, how, how the plants are bent or broken uh, perhaps the pattern of them in some way would be different uh, for an elk as opposed to uh, maybe a Bigfoot. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, well, it is Shane, pretty interesting, Shane, like you said. Yeah. Shane, oh, no, you, say, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott, finish. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was, I was just going to say, like you, like you said, that it's, uh, yeah, if, if a nest had been made, that is going to remain there probably for at least for several years, the, the, the matted down aspect. So there very well could be uh, hair evidence in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I doubt that uh, my dog wants me to play with him. No, buddy. All right. Can't play right now, bud. <laughs> uh, and um, obviously I think with that amount of time, uh, DNA would be you know, problematic but right, uh, right. but it may be morphologically at least you could find some hairs and again just if you found a bunch of hairs and they were clearly not elk or clearly not bear uh, at least they would be in the category of interesting and then you could categorize it and you know all that stuff. I'm going to I'm going to send you uh, a link to a show we did with my buddy Derek Randall on the project and when you have time oh, I'd love for you to listen to it uh, sure because I think you'll find so many corroborating things in that episode uh, that will, you'll, things will click for you. And one of them, cool. uh, well, there's a lot of things will click, but we've already had a bear biologist. We've had biologists in area and they've never seen anything like this. It's not. Mm. Uh, and when I talk about nests, I'm talking about multiple nests on multiple ridges and not one. nest. Wow. I think the total we, I think the total we've discovered now is 18 nests and oh. the original nest uh, that was uh, discovered was still had some greenery in, amongst it. You know, it was still uh, mm. fresh, fairly fresh. Yeah. Within a month. Yeah. Um, okay. But uh, I think it's an episode you would appreciate just for your own uh, research and whatever sure. else you're doing out there. I think you would appreciate it. But uh, sure. yeah, That's good. It, this Thank sort of thing you. really uh, gets me going. I, I love talking about it. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely yeah. send you that episode. I know you're a busy guy and you're 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 in production and and you're a hiking fool. Uh, but when I you get a chance, I'd love for you to listen to this particular episode because I think uh, things will uh, maybe you'll see some similarities. And uh, yeah, when when you're you out, something. yeah, well, hopefully, maybe I don't know. I won't promise that, but maybe when yeah. you're out there, uh, given the amount of time we spent in this area. Uh, maybe you'll you'll find something else to look for that might uh, ring a bell. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I haven't really been. Um, I, I I don't beat the bushes. I never, actually never have. I mean, this thing that happened to me 24 years ago was again just a very fortuitous confluence of circumstances. That I mean, I was into it. 
And I, and, but I mean, you know, guys like Randall's probably guys like yourselves who go out a lot. I've just never been wolf because one, I primarily live in Los Angeles. It's not exactly a hotbed of Sasquatch activity, except on sunset. But um, there, yeah, and I, so I, I, I don't, but I, I love speculating about it. And you know, like yeah. uh, the one thing I'd like to talk about briefly, if you don't mind, I think it's really, you, you know, like. Because I'm a pretty big no-kill advocate. I, I would love to see – I think verification would be great, but to do it without killing one. And I think it is possible. In fact, when um, I did – you know, I don't know if you guys have ever heard that Brian Brown and I and uh, Paul Vella and Sam Rich did a podcast for about seven years called The Bigfoot Show, uh, yeah. available on iTunes. And um, yeah, we got pretty heated. I mean, Brian Brian's a very bright guy respect him a lot but we really disagree on the the kill no kill and um um so i what i'm very fascinated with is the future of uh drones and specifically very small drones in the search for evidence of sasquatch like i'm talking drones the size of like big beetles that if you had a phalanx if you will a myriad a shitload of those things, which of course would require tons of dough and you had an area gridded out. Let's say if there had been a sighting, it did just happen and you thought it was pretty legit and you could program these things, uh, you know, via GPS and whatnot to go and grid search. You know, I, what I'm always reminded of is the, like the remember minority report with Tom Cruise and those little spiders, the guy, the cops would throw out yeah. and they go into a oh, building yeah. and they do a whole search. So imagine something small and tiny that could do that hovering in the air picking up, you know, any heat imagery and then reporting back what had been fine with capturing some video and then ideally, finally, injecting some kind of nanotechnology <laughs> into the animal so that you could hmm. let the damn thing live its life and then you get all this data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Some kind of tracking. You're going to learn so much yes, more about yeah, the animal. Yeah, so, but yeah, I think, I mean, obviously that's years away, uh, but uh, that would be pretty cool. Or sometimes you could get it to, to swallow uh, something, or, you know, a, a quick, although that's risky for everybody involved, a quick, quick tranquilization and just something, you know, like the aliens do to us, and then put something like... Uh, sur- <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Sur- There's part of that yeah. alien abduction experience we don't want to replicate. Yeah, no, no. I would be more like like some kind of surgical implant in the back, something where it couldn't reach around and dig it out, where you, you, you've inconvenienced it. You probably scared this animal for, you know, an hour or so. But if you had, like, a team was able to get close enough, quick triangulization, put, put some kind of device on it it couldn't take out of itself, and then uh, you let it live, like I said, and then you collect this data for however many years. You've learned so much more. Like, you know, okay, it's moved 50 miles. And then uh, we know it's on this ridge line. And then you also have, like, okay, part of this big team, you have uh, various, you know, high, you know, very experienced uh, videographers and photographers who try to get somewhat close, get some video imagery, but still basically let it live its life. And then when it dies, naturally retrieve the body, as opposed to killing one, upsetting probably some social group it's part of. These things just don't live alone, I don't think. I mean, they've got to come from somewhere and um, I think it's something that, could, that would that would please all concerned because you could get verification without actually uh, 
killing it. But it would it, it's going to require a lot of ingenuity and some dough and a lot of yeah. heart, gentlemen. A lot of heart. Yeah, I think the heart's out there. I think we're lacking in dough. <laughs> yeah, the dough, and even and even you know when I was just up on this last trip. Oh my God, man! I went through some areas that were just—you could—I kept saying, and I say it on camera. It'll probably be in the film. It's like you could hide an army of mountain gorillas up in these zones—an army, two armies. Well, there probably is an army of mountain gorillas. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's this place, this place called Woolly Creek that goes through the Martin Marble Wilderness that is just so remote and so dense and steeply sloped, as mentioned ad infinitum by me. That uh, it could things like that could easily live back in there and you know be left alone, which is kind of nice, kind of cool. Um, but you know, on the other hand, it'd, it'd also be nice to uh, to 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 prove it one day, and in a way where minimal harm is done to them, a as an individual and b as a species, and then you know hopefully it gains an appreciation from other people. Not only about them, but other life forms as well. Here endeth the speech. <laughs> I'm rambling. Okay. <laughs> I love when I finish that like a ramble. <laughs> and there's this like dead silence. I yeah. thought that was well, you, That was. Yeah. But you guys are. You guys are. Oh yes, I'm that. I am. I'm that captivating of a speaker that people just yes. actually nod off. Well, well, Shane was actually still thinking. I'm sure that Shane has images of nests, Bigfoot nests, floating around his head. I do. I do. And we can talk about this all night. And I actually uh, plan on reaching out to Scott more to talk about this. But, uh, Scott, I know, um, you know, uh, you're a busy guy and whatnot. But, you know, in your – you did another film – uh, called Still Walking, which was a follow-up to your, yeah. your uh, original film called uh, Walk, where you Walk, possibly yeah. had yeah Walk, where you possibly right. had another encounter. Uh, do you want to talk about that uh, a little bit? Yeah, no, it wasn't me, but I met a guy oh. who tells gotcha. a story about, and it's re- it's a pretty cool little story. Yeah. It's it was in uh, Northern Oregon. Where did I meet him? Wait a minute, I'm trying to remember. I met this guy in Tahoe, actually. So I was in Tahoe hiking a bit of the PCT, and this guy, oh, he did a presentation. That's right. He did a presentation in Tahoe. He had through hiking way back, you know, like in the early 80s or something. And he was near the area of the PCT where the Eagle, it's called the Eagle Creek uh, Alternative. It's one of the most beautiful stretches of trail in all of America. If you've never done the Eagle Creek Trail, it's like seven, eight miles, I totally recommend it. So, you know, outside of Portland to the east, I don't know, about an hour or so. So he yeah. had camped in there, and uh, just before he's getting ready to bed, something is walking in the periphery around. And, again, it's very thickly vegetated, and it is an area that has had a history of sightings, actually. And so he's kind of freaking him out. He can't see anything, but it's moving very deliberately like pretty sure it wasn't a deer, wasn't you know, it's just like sounds kind of big. So he had, remember he said he had some sleeping pills he had never taken on, but now he was freaking out. He goes, probably some man, I'm just my imagination. And he takes these like two sleeping pills, so he's out like a lightning wakes up in the morning and you know, everything's good. 
He says he looks over at his pack and he says, every one of the zippers is unzipped. And he was positive when he went to bed that they were all zipped. And he was sitting there trying to, I mean, you know, come to, I'm trying to think, I mean, I'd actually like to see some video of this. I know that raccoons, you know, their hands are very uh, like humans, but I don't, I don't know if they unzip shit. Um, <laughs> the fact that we're all unzipped or that it was raccoon. Anyway, and I know there's raccoons in that area, but the, the, the coolest part of the story is that as he's leaving this area, there's actually like a board that has, you know, like uh, in the middle of the wilderness, you know, uh, National Forest Service announcements and things of that ilk. And one of the a poster there says, basically it's warning the viewers that there has been some strange animal activity in this area. So because it's all that it just said strange. And so that's kind of vague and weird and just like it, basically saying he thinks that was put up so people could read it and maybe not stay there because you know, others were investigating it and they couldn't figure out what it was. But I liked how he, uh, I asked him as I go before that happened, what would, on a one to 10, what would you rate your probability of there being a Bigfoot? I think he said four. And then I said, after that, he said a six because he, I think he just found it. And he's a pretty rational guy, pretty smart that when all those things were unzipped, and coupled with what he was hearing walking around him, it just seemed he couldn't add that up to being a bear or another known animal. So now one other real quick that was in the first film walk. This is actually one of my, probably my favorite footprint related story. A guy named Mad Monty Dodge hiked the PCT in 1977. It's in Northern California. He's on the edge of the Trinity Alps wilderness where I'll be going in about two and a half weeks. And um, he's in this little pinched off Canyon all by himself, dark. And he's hearing above him. Like it sounds like this low mumbling sound, like two different types of animals on each side are like communicating. Um, he said it was just so odd sounding that it was, it was disconcerting, right? Sounded kind of big. And so he said, oh, okay, I'm not staying here. So he actually hikes in the middle of the night about a mile down the trail. Now he, he says that it's just could have been his imagination, but at the time he thought up slope from him as he was walking, he, he would stop occasionally and he thought he would hear something like take another step, you know, like you stop and then whatever, if something was shadowing him, took another step type of thing. And he was just like, I don't know. Am I imagining whatever? So he goes about a mile down. He just actually throws his tent down on the trail. And finally, he's able to get to sleep. And so he wakes up in the morning. Uh, there's no stream nearby. So fairly close, I guess, to where he camped. He goes down and he sees a seep coming down the slope down toward where the trail is. And, you know, if you follow a seep up, you might find a little, like, pond or something up there. And he goes up this – it was like grass where the seep was coming down through. And he goes up, and right on the edge of this seep is a, about a 15-inch, clearly either – I mean, there's no doubt either a big footprint 
or somebody faked it. Now, in my opinion, and I've seen probably close to it, probably at least a thousand photos of alleged Bigfoot prints, 85% of which I'm dubious about because they're right. too perfect, they're too symmetrical, they're too flat. This picture, what he did is he took off a shoe and he, and he, and he put his foot next to it. And it was clearly like dwarfing it. But like two of the toes are or like the second, there's a space between the second and the third toe. The cracking around the heel just kind of has an organic look. It doesn't look like if he, if he had made this somehow, how did he do it without leaving other telltale signs? Is it all the, the rest of the dirt around it wasn't disturbed? Plus, uh, I've known Monty for, what have I known him now, 13 years, and I've never heard anybody talk about him being a bullshitter or a hoaxer. Right. Um, and, again, 1977, if you're a hoaxer, okay, assuming it, if it was a hoax and Monty didn't hoax it, which I, I find really hard to believe, is why would a hoaxer make a print 60 feet up off a trail that was barely hiked at that point in time? The PCT had only been, in, you know, created for only four years. Mm-hmm. You know, hoaxes want their shit found. I mean, it was like a terrible place to put a print. If, you know, and then, oh, luckily this guy just happened to stumble upon it, so. Right. Um, yeah. So that's and, and that. Let's see. That is the crow flies is probably only fifty miles from where the thing happened to me, and about uh, twenty five miles from where the Patterson film was shot. Even though I do lean toward the Patterson film. Yeah. Don't get me started yeah. on the Patterson film. Well, don't get me started either, because I actually I lean the other way, uh, but only yeah. yes. no, it's a, it, that's okay, man. I, I totally no, no, and, and likewise, I, I'm perfectly no, fine no, with no. that because yeah, no, <laughs> no, I'm I'm saying I'm perfectly perfectly fine with that. I I'm not going to get a, in a heated debate. That's been yeah. done. It is what it is. Yeah. It's not going to prove anything. You know, either way, it's either real or it's not, right? So yeah. move on. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I so, think though, uh, I'm I more interested say, in you know, yeah, go ahead looking for evidence. Yeah, exactly. I'm more anybody... looking for evidence and listening to Scott Harriet right now because he's captivating oh, me. Lord. He's tickling oh, my fancy Lord. tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was just going to briefly say, and not not as a support for a, a skeptical argument of the Patterson film, I just want to tell people out there, if you're into Bigfoot, let me tell you something. And I think uh, I think, was that either was that Shane or Gunner talking there? I'm sorry that, about that. Uh, yeah, oh, Shane. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> fawning, uh, fawning you over you. Re- if if you haven't really read anything about the Patterson, do yourself a favor. And if you're kind of, it is, in my opinion, it is such a great mystery. It is, with, in my opinion, it is the single greatest mystery within the big general mystery of Bigfoot. It is a great tale. And if I felt, if I had enough money so I could get the first generation uh, copies of the film, uh, to use in a documentary, I would love to do like the, uh, what would hopefully be the most in-depth, you know, get both sides of the argument. You get everybody, mm-hmm. you get Bill Munns involved with his, his view that it's real and right. his, uh, his experimentation, which actually moved me a little bit, a little bit, but there's, but then all the red flags, which we don't have time to get into, but right. it is an amazing story. It is really an amazing story. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, read I appreciate both sides that. Of the argument. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. look look at all the pro stuff, read Bill Munn's stuff, 
And then as flawed as it is, what I would recommend is to read Greg Long's book. And it is a flawed book, but if half of, of only half of what Greg Long brings up in that book is true, if only half, and you don't have at least some data about the Patterson film, then I say she, she is shrink. That would be my that would be my recommendation. I'm not saying that to you, Shane, by the way. I'm saying that to yeah. Joe Blow out there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, you can't be one side on uh, on Bigfoot regardless, uh, or the you yeah. know, the, the evidence out there. You have to look at both sides, and you have to, uh, at the end of the day, uh, look at your own uh, uh, look at what's out there for evidence, and kind of at this point, kind of come your own conclusion or you know, you yeah. know get into it or don't uh you're not Bigfoot's not gonna be proven on facebook like gunner always says hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay but it's but true i thought you were gonna steal my quote yeah i was going to but wait a minute I, I are, you, are you, you telling later. me wait are you telling me christopher christopher Knoll has not proven that bigfoot exists on facebook he is that guy still around I, no yes, no one has <laughs> oh my god good god no one has yeah, yeah. I don't even get that. Wow. I don't even know what's right. going on there. Okay. <laughs> we, we Sorry, I don't know if I on that one. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> his, uh, his name's Christopher No. And they take the E-L out. Okay. Okay. Anyway, love you, Chris. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, quite but honestly, not. Scott, what's really fat, you know, I reached out to you because, um, you had a possible Bigfoot encounter, and you had yep. you had partaken in some interesting stuff, and 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 you're an avid hiker, which I appreciate. You love conservation, I appreciate that as well. Yep. But you're still fascinated with the subject, and you're still open. You know, I mean, I'm a little less open than you, I would think, but that's not a bad thing per se. Yeah. Uh, just, just that, um, you're not coming out screaming. I saw Bigfoot, I saw Sasquatch. You know, you're very open to that. It could be something else there, but yet you're you're very open to the fact that this this very well could be real. Sasquatch could be out there. Yeah, yeah. It's like I like exactly like I said. You have to, and I think if you're if you're going to respect the scientific method, which I think again, everybody should. Bigfoot deal. Great. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard of. I know, that was a big fun thing we like to do with the Bigfoot show. I mean, I think three of the four of us are pretty pretty solid believers. I would definitely call myself that I think the probability is super high. And Paul yeah. Paul was very agnostic, and it was good to have that mix on there. But we spent a lot of the show uh, pointing out the, the rampant amount of bad science that's been applied in this field. I mean, there's just a mm-hmm. lot of – I mean, um, I mean, you could – Although she never quite, never quite bothered me as much as, you know, Brian. But like, if you just said Melba Ketchum, to Brian, you would have some a small aneurysm immediately. Um, <laughs> yeah. There are just some, yeah, you know, you can't have. Uh, I mean, you can, you know, say what they want, but you gotta, you know, you got, you have to apply critical thinking. You have to. Um, consider all possibilities and you can't take the word. I and mean, that's why you have peer review because Melba Ketchum or anybody else. Oh, no, no, we have proof, blah, blah. And then you can't provide the data to back it up. Well, you don't have shit is basically what you, yeah. It's, that's what's great about science is that it's backed up. If, if something is proven or shown to be solid, it's able to be re-verified by others. 
And mm-hmm. if, you, if you cannot provide that, words alone are, are meaningless when it comes to proof. You right. know, I mean, like the thing that happened to me, obviously, not proof. I mean, I saw what I saw, and I like to share it if people are interested. Um, and then you take it or leave it, you know. If it inspires you, great. If you if you think I'm full of shit, well, I personally don't think that's great because I, I feel I'm telling the truth. Bad. And, and, bad and I've, I've even gone on the record of that. I'm totally willing to, if somebody else wants to fund it, I would be more than willing to take a uh, a lie detector test, sodium pentothal, um, <laughs> Ange- Angelina Jolie tickling me endlessly with a feather to try to get it out of me. Uh, any of those options. Well, you, how about... Uh, how about waterboarding? Uh, would you no. allow us to waterboard you not, live on? Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, you have your yeah, own that's own 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 commitment. Support, Dad, but not that's, that's a lack of commitment uh, there, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what's great about it, I mean, what's really cool, I mean, it's like, look, you look, I mean, you guys have the show, and we're, and we're still talking about it. It's, a, it's an actual, I think it truly is a bona fide mystery you know you have you have people who are just never really interested in cryptozoological stuff right you know the people who poo-poo everything or they're or they're just not interested it just doesn't it doesn't strike their particular it doesn't tickle their 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 fancy right but right. um but of all of all of those mysteries um like for example Loch Ness I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of Loch Ness I, I don't I don't think that I don't think the evidence is very strong I I think there are other explanations that make it really hard to believe there's some plesiosaur type creature living in lot this. I just don't think the Bigfoot. He's got a crap load of forest. He's got a lot of sightings. He got some hairs that haven't been shown to be. I don't know what they are. Right. Um, and again, for me personally, the thing that happened to me, um, it's it's a pretty cool mystery. That uh, yeah. and Jane Goodall, for God's sakes. Come on, okay. I like to drop that one. I know you guys probably like to do. You get a real scoffic. Yeah, have you ever heard of this? This is a lady named Jane Goodall. I think it's probably true. I don't know. What do you think about that, jackass? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, we we do like to uh, bomb her name out there all the time. Uh, sure. More than just just the uh, just the Bigfoot reason, but also for the fact that she actually did something with her life and got out in the woods and proved uh, out into the jungles and proved something. Yeah. You know, to that what you know with chimpanzees that blew the scientific world out of its you know little pothole. Uh, so yeah. I love dropping her name all the time. Yeah, I, I always like to put it. I go, guess who? Who? who, who you know, who do you think? Uh, you know, or I like first like to ask people who who do you say is the most famous primatologist in the world? And if assuming my anybody I talk to knows what a primatologist is. That's always the first right. thing, and then and then some people say Diane Fossey will say here, right. and then they, and then I just go sit there and I go, yeah, well she thinks they probably do exist. I mean, based on, if you take her whole interview, remember when she did that when when she dropped that bombshell, she first said she was sure it existed, right? And she yeah. quickly she pretty quickly went to a position of probability, but then at the end it was so she actually touched every field of belief. She went from certainty to probability to, oh, but then again I am a romantic. So, yeah, but, <laughs> but, but as I'm sure you guys have pointed out as well, is that the following year, I guess, I think Rick, Rick Knoll was big in getting this done was that she made that video for the BFRO way back when in mid nineties saying essentially, Hey, this, in my opinion, 
as a leading, she, she didn't say it about herself, but as she obviously is a leading primatologist in the history of primatology, that this is a valid field of inquiry. Uh, in so many words, I think she basically said, don't lump this with leprechauns and, and unicorns. There's, there's, there could very well be something to this. Are you saying there's no leprechauns? Lep- Did you say leprechauns? <laughs> a leprechaun, the offspring of a unicorn and a leprechaun. Well, that's yeah. what happens sometimes when, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a leprechaun, that sounds like something somebody with leprosy gets on their feet. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't even want to investigate that. Actually, yeah, that's, yeah. No. Just, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to someone else. I certainly, I certainly I don't just want had to touch a file rush. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, jeez. Um, I just had an, a little uh, a soft splash with that one. <laughs> well, I got to ask you, Scott. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 I know you went down back in the day down to the uh, Bigfoot Texas Texas conference and. Um, mm. That, that's one of my questions is, what was your experience there? Have you been to more? But also, is there anybody that is out there now researching or that you've worked with, probably you've worked with, that claims to be a researcher, investigator, enthusiast that you respect? But I, I yeah. would also like to, you know, what was your experience uh, at the Texas conference? Because there's there's a multitude of conferences. I've attended loads of them, and yeah. I like them. They're fun. Uh, you meet yeah. people. You talk about stuff. Um, but what's your experience there, and in, and in who in the field do you – is there anybody in the field you respect? Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, uh, you know, it's been a long time, actually. It's probably yeah. been oh, 10 years since I went to the – I went to a two or three in Texas. They were really fun, and it's nice to hear people speak. I mean, unless you've already heard them before and you know what they're going to say. And then um, – and, you know, I, like I, I mentioned Brian before, I, I really do respect Brian a lot. I mean, he – I do disagree with him on the kill, no-kill issue, but it sounds to me as though the group that has been down there in what they call – I think they call it Area X down in um, Oklahoma. Um, yeah, yeah. Their methodology actually sounds pretty solid. Uh, and the thing that I'm a little, you know, what do I, what do I believe? I'm really on the fence about it. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily because it's Oklahoma. Well, I can't be any down there, but it's, it's that area of Oklahoma that's close to Arkansas where Falk and all that stuff. There's some pretty gnarly areas down there that something primate could, could uh, hide in, I think. Uh, but what I find really intriguing about, about that, and Brian has told me firsthand, and he mentioned it on the Bigfoot show, is the several times when they have been down there, the rock-throwing incidents that they've had. Right. And if Brian Brown tells me that they're at a campsite and something is lobbing rocks, at, I, I believe him. He can distinguish. I mean, he is the kind of guy who's going to be he's smart enough and sober enough to distinguish between um, a rock being thrown or acorns falling off of a tree. You know, I mean, there are people who go out and they hear something. It's Bigfoot. Wow, I saw Bobo said they're out here, so it's got to be out here, God damn it. Um, it was a horrible Bobo fan impersonation. I apologize to anybody I offended. Um, so I'd, I'd like, again, disagreeing with the kill aspect of it, but I think that they're method methodologically they're doing a good job. Alton Higgins is a guy I would respect. 
but I don't really know that much about other stuff. I, I don't follow the boards. All, hold on a second. All that uh, close. I got to let my here. Come on, buddy. Hey. To let him in. He's making. I'm on the phone right now. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, without knowing really many other people specifically or what they do, I respect anybody who in every, you know, actually, you know, like, although I'm not a big fan of the show, uh, I'm sorry, when you guys defend a friend of Cliff's, but, you know, finding Bigfoot, yeah, I really did not like that show. Sorry, I really yeah. did not like it. I'd see a couple episodes, very sensationalized. I, I appreciate that they're trying to get the humor in there. I, I, right. I like that. That's fine. But, and Bobo's funny. Yeah. But I yeah, just, it's, I mean, it know, is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. So Renee, like right. Renee on that show, I like that, that she seemed to have actually genuinely got an interest in it. But since she comes from a hardline scientific background, I think that's good. So I... I would just recommend to anybody who's interested in getting this, getting into this, that you have to look at each particular incident separately. You can't go out there. I mean, how many times have any of us, the three of us here talking, we know these people who've gone out there and something, they hear something and they think it's Bigfoot. It's because, and I think part of it is like there's this subconscious, well, damn it, I'm spending time to come out here, so I'm going to hear a Bigfoot, like they convince themselves or they're, they're just not aware that there are other life forms or, I mean, unless we're talking about a big ass whale that is huge, hearing some other little thing, there's a lot of things that make sounds um, in the forest, uh, unless you have specific toe, five toe delineation, or perhaps a three toe in the Southeast, uh, then that impression, you that blobby thing that looks maybe like a footprint probably wasn't left by a Bigfoot. So there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. You don't, you know, that's science. If big feet are real, they're rare, man. There's a reason they yeah. haven't been discovered. And the odds of any one particular individual finding uh, a good solid piece of evidence at any given time is small. So I'm always wary of the guy who goes, oh, fine. Every time he goes out, he finds something. And I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Sure you did. Um, and, you know, you got to question those motivations. Why? Well, they like being in the spotlight. They, you know, because then it's boring if I don't find everything every time. You know, that shouldn't be at the top of your value pyramid. It should be whatever you find, look at all other known possibilities first. And then right. if you've eliminated all those. Exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. The, the and again, of, of proof is is on the researchers. I mean, that's the, yeah. the problem is that people people go out with Bigfoot first and and uh, filter it that way instead of every eliminating yeah. every possible other explanation before you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So. And yeah, and I think there's also this kind of weird group psychology thing where there's just those people that really enjoy just being out there and, like, being scared. I mean, I don't want to name names, but I know I know a couple of people like that, and they like that, and that's going to cloud your judgment, you know? But that's okay. To, right. That's okay that you like that. Uh, that doesn't – that can perhaps, you know, cloud your judgment. Um, so, 
you know, you collect your, uh, you collect, if you find some hair, you think it might be, you know, get to know other, other known animal hair, what they look like, anything you think might collect that for an imprint, take a picture. And I think at this point in time, you know, I mean, I think we've had enough plaster casts to, um, you know, construct the wall. I think actually all the casts that were made of alleged Bigfoot tracks, they could use that to build the wall, the Mexico or Trump could actually. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what another one's really going to add other, you know. So yeah, it, yeah. It, it, if you're into it, it's concentrating on somehow trying to um, – find a creative way to, to obtain DNA or some kind of tracking device. I, I don't recommend because just from an ethical point of view of not killing one, but, um, you know, start, start, get, get creative, you know, as, as much as you can imagine scenarios, you know, again, drones or, or uh, cams in some way. And all you're doing there is trying to increase your chances. It's like, you're, but it's still such a low odds thing. I mean, it really is going to take, I think, a scenario like a Diane Fossey or a Jane Goodall uh, where in, yeah. like seriously, like a lone female. I mean, there's a reason lone females have gotten close because a simple basic biology, uh, low testosterone and uh, a big primate is going to feel a lot less threatened than, oh. you know, some couple of guys out there in camos, uh, you know, drinking paps. So, um, <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. They, no, like I, other and, animals, are going to yeah. sense that. There has to be this this attitude of um, of respect, I think, coming from a researcher and and non threaten non threatenedness however you would pronounce that. Sorry, I like how you pronounce that. Yes. What's that? If you could spell that for us, if, if that is, if you could spell that. Non threatenedness <laughs> Yeah. Yes. But I think it's like <laughs> thirty thirty ends in the thought. Uh, 15 E's in the U.S. <laughs> well, 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 Scott, you know, you did, um, what would have happened if you and Daryl approached, uh, I mean, in your opinion, uh, or, I mean, you guys mm. didn't, when you had your first encounter, yeah. I mean, with, with cameras, right? With cameras. Yeah. Uh, you could have got the money shot, right? But you guys didn't do well, it. Well, I, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like, uh, again, how valid is any video in, in this day in this day and age of CGI. I mean, other than I've always said like the, the most interesting video I think that could be gotten now would be if you had a stationary camera and you somehow got one of these things running as fast as they allegedly could run. Cause if you had a stationary camera, you'd be able to verify how fast that object was moving. And if it goes faster than 25 miles an hour, then, you know, like the attempted to do, yeah. And the guy in the ghillie suit ran across the uh, hills. Oh, God, that was so lame. That was the worst. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, talking about the independent. Yeah, Memorial Day footage. Yeah, Memorial Day. So Thank lame. you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wait, did you ever see the thing when they showed that footage and they showed at the the footage that was never shown? There was a guy in the footage in a ghillie suit standing on the right side. You see him. Oh, he's like in a yep. paintball. And somehow the research, <laughs> no, no, that's not important. There could still be a Bigfoot running across. So, um yeah, videotape will will only could only good video could only I think to inspire others to right. go for the definitive evidence. Um, I, you know what I'm a little curious about. You think about I mean as many hoaxes as there have been, you know the bad YouTube 
shit, which is done primarily for, you know, shits and giggles. But you would – well, no, there have been some attempts, I think, with game game cam attempts at um, hoaxing some Bigfoot stuff. Uh, I, I guess I'm, just, I'm a little surprised there hasn't been more of that, or maybe it's that I haven't seen it. Yeah. But um, uh, the video is just kind of interesting. I, I think it, yeah. that's all it is. So, so how does one um, go about, you know, like the well, there's the DNA dart, um, right? Philosophy, which I know Drake Guinness was, you know, William Drake Guinness back in Pennsylvania, whose story's always been very interesting to me. He was in squatching is that if you got close enough to one of these things to uh, shoot and hopefully get it, you know, to get a, a small sample of its uh, skin yeah, and it yeah. stays in the dark, that would be pretty cool, man. Cause it's hard to, you know, in fact, we had on the Bigfoot show, this guy who is a skeptic about Bigfoot, but he's open-minded enough. He came on, the, he's like a Harvard educated dude. He teaches at Cornell and he's a, he's a um, DNA specialist. And he oh. and he basically explained to it. It really is like you take this DNA and the analysis is done, and once that pattern is evolved, he has access to the is it, what is the name is it the GenTech database, and literally oh. within a few seconds, it would be able to tell you if it matches something known, and if it didn't, you I mean you would know that quick. Okay, this is a DNA pattern. It came from a sample. And it doesn't match that. I don't know how closely it probably does. Or somebody who could analyze it and go, okay, it's not known, but it is primate. Um, that would be that would be huge. That would be really huge. It would be it would be huge. Um, and that's where yeah. I think, uh, you know, uh, some uh, some researchers and enthusiasts that well more than enthusiasts, but researchers, investigators, those really serious about the subject are gearing up for, or actually actively trying to do. Whether they have any success, I don't know. Uh, I think half the time yeah. people are running in circles and really don't know what they're looking for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's just a, the the hardcore you know fact about this is that you know um, they're stumbling upon evidence, you know, possible evidence, but they really have no idea what they're looking for, and they think they do, and they think they found this and yeah. they think they found that, but it really yeah. it's a long shot because it is that difficult. Yeah. I think it is that difficult. Yeah. It really is. You know, it just reminded me of another harebrained idea. I'm sure, I mean, I'm not the first to have this idea, uh, but it seems something that's kind of plausible. If you were a researcher and you had a very sophisticated cam tracker type device and you could program it that, you know, like you could program this some kind of, you have this device, right? And if if the camera was able to detect that the object in front of the camera was a certain size, like it would rule out deer or in a certain shape or girth, when how close it is to the camera, things like that. But let's say it, it met the requirements of like a, a what would be like a large human. And out of this camera, let's say if it got within 20 feet of it dead on, it was able to propel out of it, like shoot out a dart, a DNA dart, right? Uh, connected with like a thin, like super strong. The thing hits it momentarily, and then actually goes back in the machine. Come on, that's a pretty good idea, isn't it? Think about yeah. it. Yeah. Ah, hey, hey, yeah. whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa! Sounds like a documentary. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> 
But how cool would that be? It actually goes back in, and there is a sample. I mean, of course, you may have just pissed out a pissed off a really fat hunter, but um, yeah. you would try to gauge it in a way that it would eliminate other life forms that it wouldn't, and it wouldn't really harm. I mean, it would, it would like prick. It would just be like a quick, literally in grabs a bit of tissue and then retracts back in to the machine and keeps it, um, you know, keeps it from deteriorating. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think Kickstarter, what do you think? Kickstarter idea for that? Oh, uh, Hey, why not? Uh, I mean, that uh, sounds good. <laughs> I like all your other stuff. Many... So this is, uh, this is interesting. It is. I, I would think, though, it, it seems like you would only have maybe, well, if you could perfect that technology, if you could get that, and then you could have maybe four, four, sh- four shooters on the front of it, so to speak. Because once it's shot one, you can't reuse it again. Right. But then if something else passes in front of it before it's checked, um, or you have it actually rigged up via some kind of communication, um, you know, some cell tower or something, so you can see the image of what it hit. That would be yeah. pretty cool, dude. Be pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool, man. Scott, and, Scott and we're getting close happens, to... Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, we're getting close to the end of the show, but I really want to talk about, you know, we touched upon it earlier, but your 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 Kickstarter campaign, but, you know, what... Uh, what it's all about the the hopefully great 2016 Bigfoot Trail Expedition. If we yeah. can just uh, kind of close the show with that, um, I find it fascinating. Yeah. And I've been following your updates on Facebook, and I know that for those that contribute, they get a little bit uh, um, more intel uh, live and whatnot when when things yeah. happen or you know updates. Right. Yeah. And right. for those who don't know, I mean, how how Kickstarter works? It's you know it's a way for somebody doing an artistic project, like writing a book, trying to make an album, shooting a film to get funding, but it's not a straight charity thing. It's like, Oh, I'll help you out. Here's 50 bucks. You actually provide rewards on various levels. So I researched that, you know, Brian Brown, again, back to Brian, who was the one who really said, dude, this is built for you. This is, I mean, you're a independent filmmaker and you can always use more funding. So this is a way to do it. And he really inspired me to do it. And so I researched how people did these, these tiers. So like the way, like if somebody gave me one buck, if they just gave me a dollar, they get their name on the website and they're, they're, they're a backer of this project. Wow. Big deal. If you gave me 15 bucks, you get that plus the exclusive updates, uh, more detailed updates every two weeks. And then if you gave me 25 bucks, you get those two things plus a digital download of the finished film, 50 bucks, those three things, plus a autographed DVD or Blu-ray. And then it keeps going up to like 500 where you're a producer. Wow, I'm a producer. I, I never thought people would do that. Honest to God, I thought, well, who's going to pay five? And people have done it. I've had like on average like three people every film do that. So, um, you know, they get their names in the credits and all that. And, um, uh, they're just being very nice to me. I think they're they're trying to make just keep me off the street is basically. But here here you go. Here's five hundred bucks. Just stay off the street. Go so basically, the Kickstarter is is a lot like panhandling. Is what you're saying? No. No. The difference. <laughs> the difference. She was you, you panhandling. Gotta, I mean, you know, it's basically you know, a cardboard sign on the internet. It says, "I will work for." Except, except the the difference is you don't get anything. <laughs> Turn from the, from the guy panhandling. With this, right, you do get that's, well. You, you got to negotiate a little bit. Yeah. 
Well, you do. I mean, <laughs> that's why you you provide the tier. Like it's it's the you know twenty five fifty and and whatnot. And then you have to the way it works is you set a goal. Like a, a lot of like an average amount of money I like to ask is like four thousand. I can get four thousand because I've got my equipment, got the editing stuff. A lot of it is gas money, uh, some lodging, some travel, other travel expenses, some food, SD cards, things like that. And if you don't reach the goal in 30 days and you don't – like let's say if I asked for 4000 and I got 3800 you don't get any of it, which, right. is, which, which should be. Because if you need 4000 and you only get 3800 then why should those other people – see people, they have their credit card info ready to go, and after a month, right. then it's, it's, not, it's only charged if you meet the goal at the end of 30 days. And then Kickstarter makes their money by getting 10% of it. So it's actually – in my opinion, it's a great model for independent people doing projects, artistic pro- or inventions. A lot of people do it for inventions, man. It's amazing. I mean, there's some really cool shit, some cool um, drones um, these guys came up with, and you know, they, they got like a half million in um, in funding. And again, let's say those people, somebody put in 200 for that, they get one of the first drones. So it's not just having money thrown to them they do get something in the return the key is to give something in return that doesn't have a lot of out of pocket expense to you but it's something that only you you uniquely can give to them so high perceived value yeah yeah exactly exactly right an autograph and i'm looking at your your kickstarter campaign right now and it's i mean it's cool stuff yeah so I mean we we are running up against the clock i do want people to be able to find it so go to if you go to kickstarter.com and look for the hopefully great 2016 Bigfoot Trail Expedition, you will find Scott's Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, and, and so. just and just to let people know, I mean, I mean, it, obviously the, the the funding for it ended, and I and I got I, I'm very happy with it. But I do mm-hmm. honor if anybody if anybody's interested in any of those reward tiers, mm-hmm. uh, I I will honor those if they want to help me out with it and the the way to do it would be to contact me uh via email yetifan at yahoo.com and um then i can give you the specifics how to do it like via um or actually this easy yetifan at yahoo is my paypal id and just write in there what it is hey i want the 25 dollar reward here's 25 bucks and then you'll get the digital download i'll send you all the updates i've done and you'll get your name on the website. I mean, that alone is worth at least $22. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, well, thank you guys for mentioning that, by the way. So, I, I uh, no, so anybody, and I was just going to say, it actually came around at a really good time for me because I had already made a few films. So, I'd already had people who had bought my films. And um, so, I had a customer base, as it were. So, I let people know that I was going to Kickstarter route. And, you know, it's, it's worked. I've been able to fund the last uh, six films I've done. So, and I make. Well, they would ask me how much money. Oh, was that? Go ahead. No, I was, I mean, I was they would oh. Yeah, folks wouldn't conti- oh. continue to contribute unless you were doing a good job and unless they liked the finished product. Well, so you must, I, you know. So I hope so. To, or they all, or, yeah, your work. Or there's a lot of people who feel really sorry for me. One of those two. Obviously. Right. Well, there I, could I, be I that. I think it's probably true. true. Yeah, right. and uh, you know when people ask me how much money I make making these films, and I tell them, you know, just enough to still live with my 84-year-old parents. So it's a right. real, 
Yeah, it's a real um, uh, grab bag of dough. <laughs> no, it's been it's been great, man. It's great. I mean, you're uh, basically uh, you know my own boss. I have the final say, and I edit them, I direct them, I'm in them, and so it's nice. It's a lot of work, though. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a lot of work, especially the editing. It's a, like about it's a four months. Once you shoot all the footage, once you hike the trail, then it's four months of hibernation, and uh, that's it. So thank you for that plug, uh, by the way. I appreciate it. You betcha. Well, we are out of time for this episode of Monster X Radio. We want to thank our guest, Scott Harriet, for joining us today and mesmerizing us and tickling Shane's fancy. <laughs> um, and <laughs> we thanks, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will be back with another episode of Monster X Radio. Thanks, y'all, and have a great evening. Thanks again, Scott. All right. Take care. Sure, thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.